0: The difficulty comes from that innate insecurity that so many middle schoolers feel. It's hard to accept a friend you think is quirky if you're not really accepting of your own quirks and
1: idiosyncrasies. Welcome to the Parenting ADHD Podcast, where I share insights and strategies on raising kids with ADHD straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, ADHD-aholic, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I am so excited to be talking to Phyllis Fagal about the middle school years and the challenges that our kids have during that sort of transitional time in their lives and their minds and their bodies and how kids who have extra challenges can really navigate that and focus on good mental health for kids who are struggling. Phyllis is the author of Middle School Matters, and I'm really excited to have this conversation for all of you. Thanks for being here. Will you start just by introducing yourself
0: Sure. Uh, First, thanks for having me. I'm a school counselor in Washington, D.C. I'm also a therapist who works with kids and families in private practice, and I do a lot of writing, as you mentioned. I wrote Middle School Matters, and I write uh, columns for the On Parenting section of The Washington Post.
1: Yeah, such an important topic and important work. I'm always in awe of school counselors. It has to be such a challenge, but also rewarding, I'm sure. Oh, I— I absolutely love my job.
0: Even the hard parts I love. Um, I do feel like every day I get to play in a lot of ways Mm. and also just intervene when it gets a little bit harder and be a support, particularly for kids who might not have someone in
1: their corner. Yeah, and so much more needed now that we're coming toward the end or somewhat of an end to the pandemic. (laughs) Probably not an end, but... Improvement, at a least. new beginning, maybe. Yeah, and it it's really had a huge impact on kids and their mental health. And being isolated has been so hard. I'm sure it's going to be really hard for them to get back into school, back into in person, and the the social nuances and challenges and the sensory overwhelm. And you know, we've been alone or you know at least at home with only a few people a lot of us for a long time and i imagine that's going to be really hard too adding another layer of complexity for these kids i agree yeah let's start by talking about the challenges that middle school kids face um i was saying that it's a really tough time for kids there's a lot of transitioning for them really they're they're really changing what sort of challenges do you see kind of on a broad spectrum and then we can talk about what ADHD and maybe learning differences like that bring into the fold too. So middle school is hard for every middle
0: schooler because they're doing so much developmental work. This is when they're figuring out who they are. It's when they suddenly become really aware of how they stack up to their friends At the same time, they often are transitioning to a different building, maybe having more teachers, the workload might increase, which, and I know we're going to be talking about learning challenges, but that only exacerbates that situation if the demands on their executive functioning have suddenly increased. The social dynamics become much more complicated. There's a lot of shifting in middle school, and that's painful. It's hard work that has to happen, but it's really excruciating for parents to watch and hard for the kids themselves to experience. And on top of all of those things I've just mentioned, you've got the physical changes that kids Mm -hmm. are experiencing, and they're experiencing them at wildly different rates. So you can have one kid who's practically, you know, really childlike still and likes to play with dolls, and their best friend suddenly has gone through puberty and is making lists of their crushes, and so that puts another strain on that. Friendship. So I think when you add all of that together, it is, I think, one of the most important stages of development because so much is happening. They're changing faster than they have at any age other than birth to age two. And they still care what their parents think and what their teachers think. They do want to please adults in their lives and they're still really figuring out what their values are. So we can really coach them and help them become better people, higher functioning people, happier Mm -hmm. people. Uh, but it's not an easy time.
1: Yeah. And I it struck me when you said that kids are in very different places in that age group. And that's really true. And I think that is part of what makes it so challenging is that even if you're neurotypical, the kids around you are different and you may feel different. You know, they're going through just at that age, that same struggle of feeling like you don't quite fit maybe um, because they're changing at different rates and times too.
0: Yes, and I think that's absolutely right. I I don't think there is any such thing as a totally secure middle schooler. Uh, Certain things can make it harder, but even if you take the most seemingly well-adjusted, social, high-performing academic kid, they too are pretty mercilessly self-critical and having a hard time.
1: Yeah, and there's so much more social for kids, like kids with ADHD or even with autism, Now the social game has gotten so much more complex. And when you struggle with that, it really creates a barrier to fitting in. You know, my son, for instance, really struggled with nonverbal communication. And so boys at that age tend to tease each other and it's a sign of friendship and camaraderie, but He didn't know that, right? And so, what they were saying sounded, the words were really mean. So, he felt like he was being picked on when their tone of voice and the fact that they were smiling and laughing showed him that they were just teasing and it was all in fun, but he didn't see that part. He wasn't interpreting that part. And so, he he really is like, as soon as he hit sixth grade, oh boy, everybody is so mean and awful and is you know and we had to really work on those social skills, building those skills of nonverbal communication. And that's that's just one little piece of it for middle school, right? It, it,
0: It is. And the even the students who are pretty socially adept can have a hard time reading those social cues. And part of it is the challenge of the person who's trying to do the interpretation. But the other piece of it is that often middle schoolers are not very good at humor or (laughs) delineating between humor and sarcasm, or knowing who the target is and whether it's somebody who can handle the kind of teasing that they're doing. And people often think about girls as being mean in middle school, which is something that I often try to refute because I don't think it's a helpful narrative for the kids, and I also don't think it's true. Yes, their empathy is developing. Yes, they're experimenting with mean behavior, but I don't think that they're inherently meaner than any other age group. They just are really clumsy in their social interactions. And so I have to do a lot of work with kids who are neurotypical to stop and think about, you know, who has a social capital here? If you tease this particular person, what is everyone around you thinking? Are you hurting that person's reputation? How do you think that they are internalizing that behavior? Is it different if you do it versus somebody else? So there's all of that subtlety that you're talking about. And boys in particular, they travel in really big packs. Mm -hmm. They're very sensitive to where they are in that hierarchy. They just want to be part of that gang. And they will do whatever it takes to stay part of that gang. And often that means trying to impress whoever the ringleader is. Impressing them often means trying to make them laugh, trying to make them laugh. Brings us back to that whole use of humor and sarcasm that is hard to execute in a way that isn't unkind,
1: even if you don't intend to be unkind. Yeah, it's so, so complex and challenging. And I, you know, sometimes we think as adults about, oh, I wish I was in high school again or somewhere. And I don't think anybody ever says, I wish I was in middle school again, (laughs) like ever, because it's just so hard to navigate. And you also... I think, are developing that sense that you really want to belong. You're sort of seeing those cues and clues more that so than in elementary school. And that just amplifies if you don't feel like you belong. And I think almost all of them feel like they don't belong at that age, like you were saying. And they don't even feel comfortable in their own
0: skin. So it's not even the external judgment that they're fixated on. I had a girl in here the other day who told me that she just didn't know who she was. You know, it was almost like textbook developmental stage of trying to figure out her identity. And she said to me, you know, I tried like wearing black and like dyeing my hair and that didn't really work. And so then I'm like, well, if that didn't work and I don't like what I was wearing before I did that, like, who am I? (laughs) And She was so concerned that there was something wrong with her, that she didn't know who she was. And I had to really help her understand that that was the hard work she's doing right now. All of that experimentation, all of that trying on of different looks and different friend groups is how she will ultimately discover what makes her tick and who she is.
1: Yeah, I love that you told that story. It's really powerful because we do really, and, and as parents, we push back on some of that. Like, I remember when my daughter was in middle school and she wanted to try the all black. And, and I said, everyone's going to judge you just based on what you're wearing. And it's funny. Now she's 22 and just the other day she said, mom, thank you for, you know, really talking me through that and, and helping me see that it wasn't the best thing for me to do, that it wasn't true to who I am, you know, and she was doing exactly the same thing. She was just trying to figure out where she fit, where she belonged who was her tribe, and trying to navigate that. And it's so hard for kids. And then as parents, we, I don't think we see it as much. We lived it once, but we have a lot of distance from that time now, and memories don't hold. And it is totally different.
0: Yeah. And then you throw the masks in. I've had to have a lot of conversations with kids who are really hurt that someone ignored them, only to come and find out that that person literally didn't hear them. The masks can muffle sounds. Mm, yeah. It can make it harder to tell that someone's trying to talk to you. So that just added an entirely new layer of complexity to
1: all of those interactions. And I will be glad to see them go. Yeah, it's hard. I, I actually have hearing impairment, So the masks have been insanely hard Ugh, for me. Brutal. It's It's really tough. And I, I kind of avoid things because of it, you know, until I am able to, you know, go in and hear a cashier or sometimes I just send my husband instead (laughs) you know like I I can appreciate why you would do that and kids do the same things they they take the same sort of path around things that are hard or uncomfortable and I think we start to really see that happen in middle school Um, some avoidance of things that it could be an academic task it could be a team it could be friends and and social circles you know, we still have to challenge our kids to to try to work through what's uncomfortable and difficult and hard instead of just sort of getting up and trying and give, giving up and trying to sidestep it. A hundred percent. And, you know, we know that you need to have those small exposures
0: and those small successes mm-hmm. in order to build that courage muscle to be willing to put yourself out there or even to see that it didn't go that well And you survived, you know, maybe you were a little embarrassed, but it's okay. And everyone gets embarrassed sometimes. So it, it is going to be uncomfortable at times. They are going to fail and that is how they're going to learn. And that is how they're going to become braver over time. So I agree with you completely. I, during the pandemic and coming back to school and we're back in school full time. I'm in the K through eight. Some parents were really reluctant to send their kids back because the kids didn't really feel socially comfortable with returning and I was encouraging them to do whatever they needed to do to build the child's comfort and get them here even for a partial day because if you avoid something completely, it just reinforces to yourself this idea that it's not something that you can handle.
1: Yeah, and and neuroscience has shown that, it, you know, our brains are constantly rewiring and pruning and so if we continue to have the same negative um, experience with something it, it's just perpetuating even physiologically, it's perpetuating hmm. that to keep coming up for them, the same, you know, the the more we can get them to just stick their toe in just a little bit and have the little successes that you were talking about, it actually makes a big difference in their brains too, to help to keep that momentum of of that more positive experiences going. Um, super powerful for kids with anxiety, especially to really keep pushing just a little bit, not pushing until they break, you know, I I,
0: Right, right. Calibrating the risk just right.
1: Yes. And I have anxiety and social anxiety. And when I was a teenager, the social anxiety was so hard and my parents didn't really see it. And I avoided so much and it only made it harder and harder, right, for me Mm -hmm. to get over some of those hurdles. And so, I really understand that piece of it, and kids with anxiety and that sort of instinct to avoid <laughs> well i will i
0: I will say that for the kids who are anxious about social situations in particular, and I'm seeing a lot more of that right now among yeah. all students, particularly because they're Interactions with peers have been so far and few between Mm -hmm. and been, it's been intermittent and it's really hard to know where you stand with your peers if you haven't seen them in a really long time. It's even harder to interpret those social cues. And what I've been doing with the kids who have had a lot of fears about interacting is offering them as many concrete tips as possible. And that is what I have found has been the most helpful for the kids with the social anxiety, talking them through what is it Specifically, that is causing you the most concern. And it might be, you know, when I stand outside at recess and I'm looking at the other kids and they're having a conversation, I don't have a clue how to become part of it. And I feel really awkward just standing there watching them. Mm -hmm. And so then the solution might be to listen for a few minutes until you can figure out what they're talking about. And then wait until you can even formulate a question related to what they're talking about and lead with a question related to what they're talking about. And I'll explain that, you, you know, everyone loves talking about themselves. Everyone is happy to answer a question. Or it might be that we assign them some, you know, really kind, kind of wing woman or wingman kid, yeah. wing girl, wing yeah. boy to help them, which, you know, other kids are really happy to help if they're that type of kid. You know, everyone likes to be seen as a leader. And often what will then happen is, the wing girl or the wing boy will help break the ice and help
1: them get in there. And after a few weeks, they don't need that kind of support anymore. Yeah. And that's something that parents can kind of intervene and ask school counselors like yourself to get involved with. We did that in fourth, fifth grade, something like that. We were really struggling with some social stuff going on in the classroom with kids that he was spending the day with. And the school counselor got involved and they did some lunch buddy things and stuff like that. And, um, it really helped. It really helped to, and two, have someone else appear that you know that you can go to. If, mm-hmm. if you're all alone and you're not engaged with anyone, if you see that person, then you feel more comfortable trying to engage, you know, you can go and talk to them and, and feel okay about that. It's, it can be really powerful. And I also always encourage parents to ask the school what they're
0: seeing. So, you know, I had a parent call me and say, you know, what are you seeing at recess? And it hadn't really been flagged as a concern by the child herself. Mm -hmm. But when I went outside, I realized that the reason it hadn't been flagged is because she was flying so under the radar. She was so anxious about joining the group that she was literally kind of hiding behind the building with a book and just avoiding interacting with anybody. And so the challenge was really trying to figure out how to integrate her and get her into that group in ways that she was comfortable. And when you spoke to her, she would very readily tell you it was all social anxiety, but it was not something that she was able to really handle on her
1: own without support. Yeah, and in a way that is comfortable for her. Mm -hmm. That's such a key piece of it. Because we don't, again, we don't want to push too far and make it almost traumatic. You know, we don't want to... Or set uh, them up for failure. Exactly. Exactly. And I see so many parents who say, my kid's such an introvert, even before the pandemic. They don't go and hang out with friends. They don't, you know, and, and I have those kids too, and I'm an introvert too, and I used to really be worried about my daughter not going out with friends and stuff outside of school and... It was just that her comfort level was so low with that that she really could only manage doing it a little bit, um, not as much as maybe her peers were doing, and then, you know, sort of building from there. And I had to say, okay, well, you know, we're weighing her comfort versus discomfort, and we have to keep that in mind, too. yes. We need social interaction, we need connection with others, but some people kind of need more of that face-to-face than other people do, and I think it's really important to honor, you know, which kid you have, how social are they. And also, are they unhappy?
0: Because there uh, yeah. are some kids who might be hiding behind the building with the book because they are introverted and they need to recharge and they don't want to actually interact with anyone during recess. It's enough for exactly. them to have to have those 2000 interactions with teachers and kids throughout the school day. And so that is always my first question with a student. How do you feel? You know, are you here by, are you alone by choice? Did you want to take a break or do you wish you were part of the group?
1: Uh, yeah. Do you wish you were part of the group? That's a really good question for kids with some of that social struggle, for sure. What about the environment, um, especially for kids with ADHD, some of whom were probably also on the autism spectrum? Middle school is a lot more chaotic and loud if you're in the traditional middle school where you're changing classes. How do you help kids navigate some of that? You know, I think that For some kids, particularly the kinds of kids you were just
0: describing, and even more so if they had been bullied when they were in the school setting, I think Mm -hmm. virtual learning was a gift. Mm -hmm. It was an opportunity for them to learn without all of those distractions uh, many of which were unpleasant for them. And so, like you said, you do have to work with the child you have at hand. You're not going to make a kid who's got a lot of sensory issues suddenly be comfortable and happy with that chaotic middle school environment. And you can work with the school on things like that, too. So if you have a kid who really hates the noises in the hall, maybe they get dismissed a few minutes early or a few minutes late so that they don't have to be a sardine in the hall, You know, smashed yep. against the wall. Or maybe they're in a co-taught class that doesn't have as many students and it's a little less chaotic and there's a little more support, but really working with whatever the supports are that are available within your environment. Not every school is going to be right for every kid either. And so taking stock realistically of whether they're in the right place, you know, I know in our, in our local public school system, there are some schools that have special support programs within the school that maybe have... And if it's a kid with extreme anxiety, maybe there's a social worker dedicated to that program. There are special autism programs for kids who are on the spectrum. So just taking stock of what the options are working with this school system. I know it can be exhausting to try to negotiate and advocate for your child, but I think it's so important to do that and to try to get as many supports as you possibly can for them.
1: Yeah, there are many accommodations that you can do to address some of those issues. My son certainly had those struggles. He he just felt really unsafe in the hallways at, at class changes. It was too tight. People bump into you. Mm-hmm. You know, lockers are hanging open. And so he did actually switch classes at an off time and not forever. It was about six or I'd say maybe one school year. And then he was okay with it. He figured out how to navigate it. And and he was good with sort of pushing himself through that discomfort and dealing with it. And with middle schoolers who are old enough to really problem solve with you,
0: Mm -hmm. to talk to them about what is it that, what are your triggers and what are some strategies that we can incorporate? And I'm in an independent school, so we have a little more flexibility, but you can go outside, you know, you can go take a break, you can grab a weighted blanket, if that's what you need to do, you can use a fidget, you can take some time to listen to music on your headphones, anything that would help to calm their bodies, calm their minds and allow them to re-engage. I think it's important as teachers or as educators to recognize that if we're too rigid, we, you know, perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah. Better to lose a few minutes of instruction in order to allow a child to recalibrate and then join the conversation or join join the class.
1: Right, because if they go through the hall and they felt really unsafe, probably for the next hour, their frontal lobe is still not working very well because their emotional system was on high alert. And so, they're not really learning <laughs> that whole time in class anyway. So, if they get a five-minute break to take a walk and get a drink of water or whatever it is, then they might have, you know, a good 50 minutes of instruction where they're actually learning instead of just being zoned out the whole time, you know, it it can be, it can still really impact them long after they are done with that sort of environment or situation. It still can be burdensome.
0: Yes. And even knowing that the teacher understands their needs and Mm -hmm. is approaching them with empathy can do a lot to calm them and help them feel like, okay, I know I can do what I need to do. They may even be able to attend longer without that kind of a
1: break. Yeah, yeah. The other um accommodation or sort of strategy we used in middle school was to find a teacher advocate, which happened, my son had an IEP, so he had a special education teacher assigned to him, and we would use that person. And so the day before, or a couple of days before school started, when they had the open house, we would go and we would have a talk with that teacher you know, you are Luke's person. If he mm-hmm. gets overwhelmed, if he gets upset, if he feels like he can't continue what he's doing, he knows he can come to you, right? And that teacher, oh, absolutely. And so, he had a plan mm-hmm. if he got overwhelmed or if something happened, and he had an ally. And I think for for kids,
0: a lot of the anxiety comes from that sense of helplessness, from that powerlessness, you know, they're… Mm-hmm. They're just firing from their amygdala, although I will just, as a side story, a student the other day, I heard her trying to explain to another student how to turn on your prefrontal cortex and how that calms (laughs) you down, and she was trying to explain it the way I had explained it to her, and she said, here's what you have to do. You have to turn on your prefrontal cortex because that turns off your uvula, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and it's your uvula that causes all of the problems. She, of course, meant amygdala, but I, yeah. I kind of thought it was charming and, and enjoyed that she used uvula instead. But yes, yeah, so I think as, if the more you do to help kids formulate a plan in advance and to have specific strategies that work for them. So for kids with an, test anxiety, I'll teach them object awareness where I have them carry, it could be anything, a binder clip, a pen in their pocket into the test room. And I have them come up with three words to describe that object before they even start reading the instructions on the test, because when you have to retrieve language, that turns on your prefrontal cortex and can get them out of their amygdala from the fight, flight, or freeze part of their brain. It yep. takes, what, 20 seconds? But it works for many of them, not just because it is that their neurological piece and turning off the fight, flight, or freeze part of their brain, it works, I think, because they feel more in control of the situation. There is something they can do to help themselves. They're not at the mercy of their anxiety.
1: Yeah, and that that's really the key, that you feel like you have some control. So if you have a plan, if something goes wrong, you still feel like you have a little bit of a sense of control there, where if you don't have a plan and something goes wrong, you've lost all control, right? And that's much more anxiety-provoking, I wanted to talk for a minute before we have to wrap up about kids who have these additional differences and challenges and how they can navigate middle school. How do they, you know, it's already such a hard age and time and experience to navigate. When we have kids with learning challenges, behavioral disorders, what can we do to really help them find their tribe or find where they fit or even accept that they're different. So that's, that's a real challenge in middle school, because even if a kid has
0: social challenges or differences that make them stick out, and they know that they're different in some way, that's pretty obvious. That doesn't mean they don't want to be quote unquote popular, or that they don't want to be accepted by the, you know, the kids they consider cool. And that can be a really hard experience. You know, as adults, we know we just want them to have a couple of good friends, somebody they can trust, that they can count on, that they're Mm -hmm. not alone, that is so protective. But it's really hard to get some kids to a place where they can say, you know what, I'm going to take my friends where they come, as opposed to trying to insert myself where I don't belong. And so as parents, I think one of the things that we can be doing is really talking about our own lives and the times that we made good friend choices, bad friend choices, and why we consider something a bad choice. You know, maybe it was somebody who didn't make us feel like we could be ourselves or we always felt awkward instead of confident or we were trying too hard or they didn't laugh at our jokes, whatever it happens to be, but just helping them identify what it is that constitutes a good friend and helping them really take people where they are. And a lot of the difficulty comes from that innate insecurity that so many middle schoolers feel it's hard to accept a friend you think is quirky if you're not really accepting of your own quirks and idiosyncrasies. Mm. So the second piece of it is to really work with kids to embrace and appreciate what makes them different as opposed to fighting it or being angry about it or feeling like it's unfair. A lot of kids feel it's unfair that they struggle in ways that other kids don't struggle. So I will remind them that everybody is struggling. And I can say that legitimately as a school counselor, everyone is struggling. Nothing is easy all the time for anybody, but sometimes it's not as visible. It could be something that's going on in someone's family life. It could be an invisible eating disorder. It's really hard, though, for a kid who has more visible struggles to really relate or understand that. And then I ask them to... Really consider what is a positive about whatever it is that is their perceived challenge or their actual challenge. Like, let's come up with two positives for everything that you're identifying as a negative. And I do this with neurotypical kids too. You know, if they say, I'm, I'm really quiet and I have a hard time speaking up in class and I wish I could speak up in class. And I'll say, well, come up with two good things about being so quiet and having a hard time speaking up in class. And it can take them some time, but it might be that when they do speak, everybody pays attention. Everybody really listens because they know that this person only speaks when they really feel compelled to say something. Yeah. If it's a child who has ADHD, it could be that... They really add a lot of dynamism to the class discussions that they introduce an element that no one else has thought of, which is 100% true. And I love to also share stories, real success stories of outside the box thinkers who maybe had dyslexia or had ADHD when they were growing up, and how it's not despite that challenge, but because of that challenge or that difference that they were able to accomplish what they did in life.
1: Yeah, talking about some celebrities or, or well-known people who have achieved greatness.
0: And it could even be you, the parent, because, you know, to a child, they may not realize that you too struggled at times. It looks like your life was a straight line from, you know, seventh grade to success. So I think it's very helpful to talk to kids about where you were tripped up or where you hit bumps in the road. I love to have, I love it when parents have a weekly conversation with their kids. And teachers can do this in the classroom too, where the prompt is, What was the most embarrassing thing or perceived failure that you experienced this week? And what did you learn from it? Or how did you grow from it? Or what was an unexpected blessing as a result of it? But really reframing those gaffes, those embarrassing moments in a way that helps kids understand that that is exactly
1: what you need to have happen. It's expected. It's just part of that journey of growing up. Yeah. And showing them that we're all human. You know, a lot of times as parents, we really want to not show any sort of mistakes or flaws or even emotion to our kids. And I think it's a huge mistake because the more real we are with them, the more accepting they are about those real qualities of themselves. You know, we need to show that something was hard for us, but we pushed through or We learn something from it or, you know, we just made a mistake and then talk about what we could do differently next time. You know, having those things happen in front of our kids and talking about them with our kids is so very valuable because otherwise they're looking at us and saying, well, I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to be perfect. They need to see that nobody is. Nobody is perfect. Yes. And it's okay to say
0: that was super embarrassing. I can't believe I forgot to show up for that very important work meeting. But then you want to let them see how you recover. So Mm -hmm. here's what I did. I went on up for a walk to clear my head and tomorrow I'm going to go into work and I'm going to figure out if there is an opportunity for me to meet one-on-one with that person I was supposed to meet at that meeting. But just let them
1: see how you you recover, that you can keep moving and putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. It's so, so important, especially for kids who really get really stuck, you know, who who struggle with very sort of rigid thinking and get mm-hmm. very stuck in things, or kids who are very emotionally sensitive and they get really overwhelmed easily with emotion, you know, it's really important for them to see that it will get better. <laughs> and there's a process to that and what that might look like for them and to have that role model of how to work through challenging and difficult things. And
0: also just Really helping them understand that those same challenges that are making life more difficult for them than a peer, maybe an academic challenge or an executive functioning challenge, are likely to set them up to just take for granted that they have to work hard no matter what they do. And even for kids for whom everything is easy, eventually they're going to hit a time in their life where something is hard. And they will not necessarily have mastered that skill of persevering the way that a kid who is just used to everything being difficult will be
1: able to deal with that. Yeah, building resilience. That's really Mm -hmm. what we're talking about. Building resilience. Well, I know there's so much more we could talk about about the middle school years and kids and struggles in that area, but we have run out of time for today. I do wanna let everyone know you can find a link to Phyllis's book and website and ways to connect further with her work in the show notes for this episode, which are found at com slash 132 for episode 132. And, and I definitely encourage you to take a look at the website and get the book. It's it's all amazingly helpful as this conversation has been. I can't believe how much we've packed into a short time, just so much to learn from you because you're there and you're experiencing it. And as parents, we were not there. And I really, really appreciate you sharing some of your time and your wisdom with everyone listening.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed our conversation.
1: Yes. And with that, we will end the episode. I'll see everyone next time. Thanks for joining me on the Parenting ADHD podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses, Parent Coaching and Mama Retreats at ParentingADHDandAutism.com.